0: Our text for today, Matthew chapter 1. We've been going through Matthew on Sunday evenings and before that Wednesday evenings for quite a long time. And I uh, looked back at when we had last gone through Matthew uh, at Christmas time, these early chapters, and it's been like four years. So I thought, well, let's get back to it. So we're going to go back and look at uh, this opening text and think about the significance of it because it is significant. This is the kind of text um, that oftentimes gets just skipped over. I mean, I'm not just talking about in preaching. I'm talking about in our reading of the Bible. We see these genealogy tables and we just think, let's go to the next page. uh, Because sometimes we just see a long list of names and we don't think about the significance of why an inspired author would include these words. And it is important to think about. There is a reason that Matthew not only includes this but begins with this begins at the outset of his gospel by wanting you to consider the genealogy of Christ and its significance in understanding who he is telling you Christ is. And so as we look at this today, we want to to think about all this. Now, he's going to establish, obviously, that uh, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's what we're going to be looking at. He's the fulfillment of all of Israel's Uh, history, if you will. It's all pointing to him, and we will see that uh, today. Now, what I'm going to do, instead of reading all these names again, is we're going to read the first verse and the 17th verse, because these are the ones we want to focus on this morning. It's important to have those other verses to show you how he walks through and proves this genealogy. But for our purposes today, I want us to focus on verse 1 and 17. So it begins again, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ... The son of David, the son of Abraham. And then in verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are fourteen generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are fourteen generations. Now, as we think about this today, I want us to look at these categories that this author has given us, that Matthew has given us. First of all, Uh, the son of Abraham, or the seed of Abraham, and second of all, the son of David. And so we're going to try to look at this this morning and think about what Matthew, uh, or I should even say what the Holy Spirit is telling us through Matthew. So if we're walking through uh, the book of Genesis, I think if you just didn't have any understanding of Genesis, you're just reading through it for the first time, you would recognize that it, it covers important people. You would recognize names and realize that these are important people in the narrative of what, of what God is doing and what He's giving us. And you would recognize in those names, names like Adam, right? You'd recognize Noah. You'd recognize Abram. You'd recognize Isaac and Jacob, right? You'd recognize some of these names, and you would see that they are important people. They're important uh, in their weight. And you would see at the end of the uh, book of Genesis. Joseph, for instance, has a a huge amount of the text about him, or at least centered on the narrative that's going on, uh, the history in which he is partaking in. But if you think about it, I think as you walk through that Genesis text, even if no one guided you, even if no one told you, here's what matters, here's what's important in this, you would recognize something significant happens in Genesis 12 and the appearance of Abram. You would recognize something has happened here. Something important has happened. We know from the time of the, of the fallen narrative, it seems like we're looking at the consequences of sin. right? It seems like we've got murder. We've got uh, the downfall of mankind. We've got sin getting so bad, God says, I'll wipe out all of mankind. I mean, it's just like the, this downward trajectory, it feels like, except there are promises along the way, promises seen in Genesis chapter 3. Right, that there will be a seed coming, of woman one day who will crush the serpent's head. But largely the trajectory is going downward. And yet there seems to be a turn. After the peoples are divided uh, and, and all these languages let up, then immediately it gets to this history of Abraham who is called. And if we were to turn and look at that really quick, turn back to Genesis chapter 12. You have the Tower of Babel, of course, in chapter 11, and then a genealogy itself that leads you to this particular person. And we come to chapter 12, and it says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who bless you or him who curses you, and in in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan, and Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth trees at Moreh. And the Canaanites were then in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountains east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the the east. And he built an altar to the Lord. And called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. Now, if you just take this portion of the text, which is concerned with this promise that's been given, this promise, you will notice immediately that God gives a promise that is at least fourfold. You could even divide it up a little bit more than that, but at least fourfold. And there's a promise of land which He will show Him and give Him. He's going to make Him a great nation. It's going to be on that land that this will happen he gives a promise of descendants that will inhabit the land. So he's going to have his own heirs, his own offspring who will inhabit the land. God will bless Abram and he will bless all the nations through Abram. Uh, And these are amazing, amazing promises. And you could argue that these promises really set the backdrop for what happens throughout the Old Testament story leading up to the coming of the Messiah. Almost all of it is. In fact, Uh, What is the early books of history concerned with? If we go through the five books of Moses and Joshua, getting into the land, right? Going in to take the land that God has promised them. And then we have some further work in trying to gain the land and hold the land and expand in the territory that God had promised. And even in the days of kind of the the golden days of Israel, if you will, of uh, King David and King Solomon, they don't have all the land. I mean, we have to recognize this. It's an attempt to continue to see this promise fulfilled. And so again, you have all of this as part of the history that we're reading in the Old Testament of this idea of going to the land that God had promised Abraham. This land had not been promised prior to chapter 12. It's shown to Abram there and it said, this will be your land. I will give you this land and your descendants this land and it will be theirs. And so again, we see a large part of the Old Testament is a fulfillment or a working, if you will, toward uh, God's promise here that's been made. And if you uh, continue on from that, this nation obviously will come from Abram himself. It's his own descendants. And uh, kind of the glorious history of, of Genesis there is how this promise takes place, isn't it? I mean, Abram becomes impatient, he doesn't want to wait. He comes up with other plans like, uh, God, how about Eleazar? He's going to be my heir. Uh, And then after that, God says, no, it will not be Eleazar. So he plots with Sarah and her maidservant to have a child there, Ishmael, as we know. And again, this is not the heir. Though Abram pleads that God would let him be the heir, God says, no, this child is a child of promise. It can't be of human effort. It must be of promise. And uh, so again, we see all this happening. And it would seem, if you will, the promised heir or seed is then Isaac. And in one sense, he is, isn't he? He is the child that's been promised, if you will, to Abraham. But the Bible asks us to look even beyond that, doesn't it? To say that Isaac is a shadow. He's a type of a greater seed that comes from Abraham. And uh, that is by the way, given to us over and over in the New Testament. Acts chapter 3 declares that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of the seed to Abraham. So does Luke chapter 3, verse 34. So does today's text, verse 1. So does Galatians 3.16, where Paul says that the promise included a seed singular, which is Christ, he says. Paul says, if you want to understand that promise, yes, there is a Immediate fulfillment, if you will, in the person of Isaac, but it's really pointing forward to the one through whom the true work comes, the true blessing comes, and that is Jesus. And so he is the messianic king, the messianic seed of Abraham, and this is what we need to recognize. So, what Matthew is setting out from the very beginning of this is we need to look at the fact that Jesus is claiming to be someone. Right? This is a claim that Matthew wants you to deal with in the very first verse. The very first verse. He's going to get right into it and say, here's who Jesus is. He is the son of Abraham. But we need to think about this because it's not just that that he says. He also says that he is the son of David. Look at it right there. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In fact, he doesn't even put Abraham first, does he? He puts David first. He says he is the son of David. Now, again, that carries with it, uh, if you will, implications. You could say, on the one hand, being a son of Abraham, aren't all Jews sons of Abraham. This is kind of a, a claim that was made. But this is not what Matthew is arguing here. He's not saying he's just another son of Abraham. He's saying he is the son the sea the heir if you will of the promises made to abraham and if you want to continue he says the same thing about david now it's important to recognize this he calls jesus the son of david now we all know from reading the new testament that this is a term that we become familiar with right the son of david david's son the heir of david's throne this is a messianic claim and title jews recognize that when jesus uh, was being called this, people would recognize something's being said about him, a claim about him, that he is the one, if you will, who is the heir to the throne of David. He is the one who sits on this everlasting throne, over this everlasting kingdom uh, that God had promised. Well, where did God promise that? Second Samuel chapter 7. Now, you know this story, I'm sure. It's important. It's an important history in the Old Testament. It's important to us today. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around. We've been talking about this in Hebrews, haven't we? This very thing, that uh, the warning to the generation in David's day was of a people who had entered into what seemed like a bit of rest. A bit of relief, if you will, from their enemies, just as Moses wrote to a people who had seemed to enter, even in the wilderness, in a little bit of relief. They were no longer slaves in Egypt. So keep that in mind. So they were given rest from all his enemies, David's, all of his enemies, all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Now, this is really important to the history, isn't it, of the Old Testament. David becomes king. He desires to be a righteous king, a, a man after God's own heart. He says Saul allowed the Ark of the Covenant to sit uh, out in the fields, if you will, all this time since it had been returned, uh, or basically uh, the Philistines didn't want it anymore. They sent it back, right, and it just sat there. And so again, uh, he says it's, it's time to bring it to Jerusalem. It's time for it to be at the center of the the Lord's people. We want the presence of God at the center of where we reside, at, in our holy city, if you will. And so uh, we could go into the long story there, we won't, of how the ark makes its way to Jerusalem. But again, once it gets there, they celebrate. They have a Thanksgiving celebration. They, they eat and they drink and they dance and they celebrate and worship God. And David wrote a psalm. As a matter of fact, on that occasion, he says that God is great and greatly to be praised, which of course He is. So David says, sitting there one day, looking out at the situation he's in, he says, you know, the Ark of the Covenant sits under a tent. That's God's presence amongst His people. It sits under a tent. I live in a palace far nicer than that. Finally appointed palace. And to David, it did not seem right. He said something must be done about this. So he called Nathan the prophet. And he said, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Now what's great here is, Nathan knows what he's thinking. Nathan, before he goes on with the plan, Nathan says, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And I think we've talked about this before. It would seem that it is a, a good idea. Right? It's a... It's a it seems to be a good idea. It seems to be a holy idea in the sense of it's saying that this should be set apart unto God. Why should a man live better or be in a better appointed place than the Ark of the Covenant? And so David is, is going to do this. But, of course, God speaks to Nathan and says, go back and tell David, no, it's not for him to do. Now, this is the history given to us here. And in this, God says to David, David uh, and we've, we've talked about this before. Remember the relationship here. I have brought you out of the sheep pastures. I brought you into this position. I provided for you. I've appointed for you to be king. I will, uh, at the right time, take care of this, but it's not for you to do. And in this, he tells him, I'm going to do something for you, David. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to give you a lineage. And there will be one who comes from you who will reign forevermore. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, that is the promise given in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But usually, when I preach it, I go to 1 Chronicles 17. And the reason I do that is because this is a, a retelling or a recapping of that very event. And I think it's a very important one uh, for us to consider at Christmas time. Because here's why the Chronicles are written not at the high point or glory days of Israel's history. But as the people came back into the land, think about what they came back to. No Davidic king, no temple, really largely no city, certainly no walls. Nothing that they once looked upon and said, here is God's promise and blessing upon His people. Here is all that we uh, can look at and see God is blessing us. You can almost imagine it would be very easy for people to say, those promises are nonsense. God didn't fulfill them. Has He been, well, we could say like the psalmist we read this morning, has God forgotten to be gracious to us? Is He no longer gracious to us? You could imagine all these things, but this is not the response of the faithful people in the land. They remember the promises of God and they trust in them. They say God has made promises and He will keep them. And so in that context here, the chroniclers write down the same promise there's no Davidic king on the throne. There's, there's nothing like what they can imagine. If they, read, they read this and they hold on to it. And in fact, I really like the way it's worded in, in this place a little better because I like the irony of the way it puts God putting it. David wants to build God a house and God says, No, David, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a lineage. I'm going to build you a dynasty. I'm going to build you something more important. I'm going to build you uh, a a throne that will have someone who will reign on it forevermore, and his kingdom shall be forever. And that's what he says. He says, I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Forever. Now, all Israel knew that this is the son of David. This is who's being referred to. This is the Messiah. The Messiah, which is the anointed one, the Christ This is who is being spoken of. And so it shouldn't be taken lightly when Matthew says, I want to tell you about this Jesus who is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of David. He is the one we've been waiting on. He is the heir to the throne, the heir, the, the fulfillment of the promise made to David. Here he is, Jesus, who is the Christ. Now, all of that is important. I was reading this past week, uh, R.T. France said, if you had a single word that was the theme of Matthew's gospel, it would be fulfilled or fulfillment. I can't remember if he said fulfilled or fulfillment, but it was one of those two words. And I was thinking at the time, you could say the same thing of Hebrews, couldn't you? Really, Hebrews is all about how all the Old Testament shadows, pictures, and promises are fulfilled in Christ. Matthew is saying the same thing. And he starts his uh, gospel write this way by saying, look, all of these things are filled in Christ. And if you think about it just for a moment, he offers you a, a genealogy to prove it. He walks through this genealogy and he notices something in it that we need to recognize. He notices something that he talks about in verse 17. A little closing note, but something that's interesting. He notices that there are markers, if you will, in these major events Abraham, the one whom God called and uh, called out of Ur of the Chaldees, the one who God made promises to, this, this huge figure in the history of the Old Testament, there's something you would note about him. And then who's the next great figure? You might argue Moses, but he doesn't list Moses. He lists David. David. Now, is that because these are the two that he is tracing back to and saying that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham? Maybe so. But regardless, he notices something very important between them. There are 14 generations, 14 generations between them. And then he also notes another major event in the history of Israel, which is the exile. It's a a monumental event, isn't it, in the history of Israel? In fact, if you were to list the major events, I don't know how many there would be, but it would be up there, wouldn't it? It would... Be the call of Abraham and and maybe it would be the exodus and you'd go down a list but the exile would be there for sure and in fact the exile dominates this way of thinking because it was the last time that you could really say that there's a Davidic king on the throne you know so again it's a major event you can almost see the promises are given to the first person Abraham they seem to be fulfilled and re-promised again in David and they seem to be lost in the exile unless you have eyes to see that God is going to work through all that. He's going to work through all that to complete His purposes. You know, in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is called to preach to a nation that having ears will not hear, having eyes will not see, will not respond, and he says, how long? He says, until the the cities are utterly laid waste. Until the tree is cut down, so to speak. But he reminds them of something, a promise that's given there that life will remain in the in the stump of the tree that's a call to the people in those days of exile to remember that God uh, has let us go through this catastrophe has brought this upon us Uh, you could even argue brought it on themselves by not keeping the agreement of the covenant but regardless there is a promise beyond that that they will come back into the land that there is still a promise there is still hope God will still keep his word he is faithful Paul says let every man be a liar God is faithful God will keep His word. And those that had eyes to see it would see it, and they would recognize it. And Matthew is saying here, 14 generations from Abraham till David, 14 generations from David to disaster. 14 and 14. And if you're applying some just logic to this, you might think, well, what would happen 14 generations after that? What might Happened 14 generations after that. Well, he doesn't leave you in suspense, does he? Because from the time of the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations until the Christ. Until the Christ. I want you to consider for a moment that yes, he explains this through verses 2 through 17, but just think for a moment again at that very first verse. It's a book, he says, to begin this, of genealogy, but look at the claims In the second half, so let's even go to that point. Second half of the first verse, he calls Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of David, and the Son of Abraham. That is not a small claim. He is saying he is the one who is the promised seed, the one through whom God is working. He is the one through whom God will bless all the nations. He says that he will bless them through Abraham. It's through his seed. It's through Jesus. He's the one. And furthermore, He is the Son of David, the one who will rule and reign on this throne forevermore. He is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of David. And again, we would have to do a little more work there if it wasn't for the fact that in Hebrews we've been looking at this for a long time. But it's important to see that the Bible uniformly uh, proclaims this. Christ is the messianic Son of David, the rightful heir to the throne. He is this messianic king who came and represented His people. If you remember when we went uh, through Matthew's Gospel many years ago, and we got to those parts after this, it's that Christ is not only the fulfillment of the history of Israel, but He relives the history of Israel. In the wilderness, tempted and tried, yet faithful. Goes into Egypt, comes out of Egypt, faithful over and over again, Christ is seen as the faithful son, the faithful Israelite, if you will, and he represents his people. And my friends, as Hebrews tells us, he goes to Calvary's cross and gives his life as an atonement and, of course, uh, dies, goes into the grave, raises, is exalted to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns forevermore as the true and messianic king. And so, my friends, as we think about this and we enter in this Christmas season, don't forget the claims that are being made about Christ. Who He is, what He accomplished, what He came to do. That in Christ, all these lines of prophetic promise unite and are fulfilled in Him as the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, as the Messiah. And as we look forward in the weeks ahead, I love how Matthew is going to continue to unfold this, and I look forward to it. But as we enter this season, remember who Christ is. I often try to say we make a mistake in overthinking about him as a babe in the manger. It's a cute picture. But the way the Bible describes it is this is the moment, the power of God, if you will, uh, in this salvific work entered into the world. It's a marvelous and amazing moment. And Mary certainly frames it that way, doesn't she? And so, my friends, as we think about entering this season, let's think about who Jesus is who Matthew tells us he is. And as he goes on, as we go on at night, further on in Matthew's gospel, we'll see how he continues to show that Jesus is the Christ.